0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au To start us, I'm going to read God's Word. Um, So we are in the book of John, chapter 16, verses 4 to 24. So while you get that up on your devices or on your Bibles, um, I just want to remind you that at Ankar, when we read the Bible, we believe that we are reading God's revealed truth. The Bible gives us access to who God is and what he is like and what his plan for the world is. And that's a real privilege to read that together. So why don't you open up to John sixteen, four to twenty-four, or you can follow along behind me. This is Jesus talking. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because of these things that I have said. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more now than you can bear. in a little while you will see me no long, no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete.
1: Thank you, Bree. We are continuing our series in the upper room. And before we get to the word, I just wanted to, uh, one quick announcement. We are, our Sparks family are heading away on vacation uh, next Sunday and the Sunday after. It's our fourth attempt to do this holiday with Queensland borders being closed. Uh, It's a much needed holiday for our family. I think it's the second one in the last two and a half years. So we feel like we really need it. We would appreciate your prayers for us while, while we're away. Um, so, we are in John 16. We've got a couple of more messages to go in this series. Over the next couple of weeks, while I'm away, James Eyre and James Wong will be bringing uh, some of the back end of this series to you in, in John chapter 17. But uh, today is a really, really important part of this, um, this story. So, why don't we pray together that God would open our eyes by his spirit to see what he wants to say to us this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good, that you're gracious. And we thank you that you have a plan for this world and the place that your church will play in your unfolding story of salvation to the ends of the age. God, help us to see the part that we get to play in this as we are strengthened, empowered and animated by the presence of your spirit with us. We ask that you would speak to us this morning. Transform our lives and help us to be the church that you call us to be. We ask this in Jesus' strong name and everyone said in a big, loud voice, amen. amen. Well, farewells are difficult, aren't they? They're hard, especially when there's a healthy... Re- I mean, I guess a farewell is not difficult if the, the relationship is unhealthy. See ya. But if a, if a relationship is healthy, a farewell is difficult. I think about the moment that my family immigrated from South Africa to Australia and the farewell with my auntie and uncle at the airport, my mum and my auntie weeping. I was just about to turn nine. I was like, what's happening? Is is this going to be forever? I was like, I had no idea that we were literally immigrating to the other side of the world and never returning. But farewells are difficult. If you think of a funeral, a funeral is a difficult farewell for us. Probably one of the most difficult farewells that we've had to do in recent years has been the preschool drop-off with your firstborn. For all of the parents who have done that, for some of you with clingy children and perhaps not free-range, free-spirit children, like our firstborn was very, very difficult. I remember we we dropped off uh, our child to preschool. It was a terrible screaming departure. We went back to the car park and the, the preschool teacher held Judah up to the window while we walked out to the car park. And our last images of our child was him screaming in the hands of a stranger as we left. I'm thinking, what are we doing? We're literally leaving our screaming child with total strangers. This makes no sense. Tash is crying. I'm trying not to cry. probably was crying, if I'm honest with you. But the thing that kind of got me through that moment was this realization, this reminder that as difficult as this moment is, in the long run, this will be good for him. I'm not sure if it was good for us as parents, but it will be good for him. This will develop confidence. It will develop resilience. It will help him expand his social skills and all of these kinds of things. It's the, what's on the other side of the grief and the sadness and the hurt and the pain that helps me get through that moment. And I can't help but think of that moment as I read this scripture for, for this morning's sermon. Here are the disciples whom Jesus has been telling for the last three years, you must leave everything to follow me. Come and follow me. Jesus calls the first disciples in the very beginning, Peter and John, who are fishermen. He says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They follow him with all of this expectation and anticipation that he is the promised Messiah, that he will usher in the kingdom of God, that he will restore Israel to God's rightful place in the world, that they will overthrow the Roman rule. And all of this expectation is building up as the disciples see Jesus heal and cast out demons and argue with the Pharisees and teachers of the law. All of this expectation, anticipation is building up in their hearts, even to the point where they begin to argue amongst themselves about which one of them will be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom and who's going to sit at his right and his left, all of this kind of stuff. And then we get to the upper room, this last kind of conversation that Jesus has with his followers, and he says to them, I'm leaving. I'm going. You've got to put yourself in their shoes for that moment. As Jesus, after years of calling them to costly followership, he says, Now I'm I'm going to go, and you guys have to stay here. And the predominant emotion that arises from the disciples over and over again in in this farewell upper room narrative is that of grief. They're sad. They're worried. They're concerned. They're anxious. But Jesus says to them, in fact, it is for your good that I am leaving. It is better for you if I go. It's for your good. It's better without Jesus. Now, that, that, that does not mean that your life is better minus Jesus entirely. G- we'll explain what that means in a second. Jesus is suggesting that it is going to be better for the disciples And better for us to have the Holy Spirit inside of us than to have Jesus beside us. It is better for you if I go, says Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but most of us have given the choice between having the physical, tangible presence of Jesus next to us or the presence of Jesus mediated by the power of the Spirit. I think most of us intuitively, because we are so framed and shaped by a tangible world, would say, I think I would prefer Jesus next to me, like the real incarnate flesh, hands touching Jesus, right? And yet we know that as we read the story of the life of Jesus, that seeing Jesus doesn't automatically equal faith. Jesus promises, he says, it will be better for you if I go. Have a look at what he says in verse 5. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me, to my father. And none of you asks, where are you going? Now, to be fair, they kind of did ask. If you remember all the way back in John chapter 14, Thomas says to Jesus, well, hey, we, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way if we don't know where you're going? And, and Peter says a similar question. But I think the tone of what Jesus is saying here is, all you're concerned about is my departure. You're not really interested in what is happening. You're not really interested in in what's happening for me. You're just so caught up in your own grief. None of you asks where I'm going. Rather, you are filled with grief because I've said these things. Verse 7, but very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the comforter, the helper, the friend will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. All the way back in John chapter 7 as Jesus uh, he, he is it's, it's the the festival of the the tents the tabernacles and Jesus is in Jerusalem there's a there's a whole bunch of people there and he says this and John records it he says this in John 7 verse 38 whoever believes in me as the scriptures said rivers of living water will flow from within them and then John attaches this little editorial comment to that. By this, Jesus meant the Spirit. So rivers of living water will flow within. That is the Spirit whom those who believe in Him would later receive up until this time the Spirit had not yet been given. Why? Because or since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Spirit will come when Jesus ascends and returns to the Father's right hand. Now, it's not that the Son and the Spirit can't occupy the same space, right? It's like, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. It's like, it's not not a spatial problem. (laughs) That was was a pretty bad southern accent, wasn't it? (laughs) Katie's killing herself in the front row. Don't laugh too hard. You'll have a baby. It is not that this is a spatial problem, right? Jesus and the Spirit cramp each other's style. No, this is a part of the unfolding progression of the sending Father. You see, it is the Father who sends the Son, and then together the Father and the Son send the Spirit as a part of God's unfolding plan. And Jesus says, it will be better when I go because then the comforter, the advocate, the friend will come. Why is it better? Well, when Jesus, firstly, when Jesus sends the Spirit, His presence with His people on earth, His presence is no longer limited by the constraints of His humanity at that point. Jesus promised, you remember at the end of the Great Commission, I will be with you always. For how long? To the ends of the age. Well beyond the lifetime of the disciples, Jesus' promise is that his presence will be mediated by the Spirit forever till the ends of the age. And so as he sends the Spirit, his presence is with his people in a way that he was never able to be present because of the constraints of his flesh, his human nature. So that's one reason why it's better. The second is that we know as we read past this part of the story that we're up to, we get to the book of Acts and we see that as the Spirit is poured out, Jesus says to the disciples, you are to wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. So we know that the Spirit empowers and guides and leads the disciples after Jesus' resurrection and ascension in a way that he simply did not before. And the pivot of that moment is that prophecy from Joel 2 where where the Lord prophesies, after this point, I will pour out my spirit indiscriminately on everyone, men and women, slave and free, young and old, will all receive the spirit. And up until that point, the spirit was poured out on a select few, typically the Lord's anointed. And so we know that as Jesus ascends, the spirit descends in a new form of power and presence. And that is why Jesus says, it is better that I go. The disciples will experience streams of living water flowing through them. A source of life, an inner source of life that shapes how they would live their lives. The Spirit empowers them by His presence in a fresh new way that was not their experience up until this point. And and all of that occurs despite the physical absence of Jesus. It is better if I go. So what will the advocate, the friend, the helper do when he comes? This is what Jesus says. He has two, and, and it's important to distinguish the spirit is not an it. right? The spirit is a he. It's not like the force in Star Wars, this impersonal, force, right? The Spirit is a He. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, distinct, but one. And this is what He will do when He comes. He will have an outward ministry to the world, and He will have an inward ministry to the church. So firstly, an outward ministry of conviction to the world. Have a look at what Jesus says in verse 7. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when He comes... He will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment regarding sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you will see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Part of the Spirit's ministry in the world is to vindicate Jesus. Now, you remember there was a whole bunch of nuanced English words that we used to try and describe the title advocate, right? That, that word advocate was rich and nuanced in the original language. That's why I'm using friend, helper, advocate, legal aid is kind of one of the nuances of that word and of his ministry. And here, you remember back in, uh, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, the world will hate you. If you are my disciples, keep in mind, they hated me, they're going to hate you. Right, And the Spirit comes there as a promise of comfort to stand alongside the church. Well, here, John kind of flips the image and says, The Spirit is now going to stand as a witness, as a prosecuting counsel against the world and bring conviction and proof and evidence against them in three areas. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. They're not words we tend to use anymore in our common vernacular, sin, Righteousness and judgment. The Spirit will come to the defense of His people, exposing the false narratives, stories, and views of our world. Firstly, in regard to sin, sin has become this idea, in our context at least, of a guilty pleasure. You're like a magnum ego. That's the equivalent of sin. It's like this guilty pleasure that we have. But Jesus says here the very root of sin, as the Spirit will reveal, is an unbelief in Jesus, a rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, the chosen one. In regards to righteousness. Now, righteousness here, you've got to remember the form of righteousness that existed amongst the religious. Jewish leaders of the first century was predominantly focused on outward behaviors that had very little to do with the inner heart. Jesus' accusation against the religious leaders "Are you are whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look great, but on the inside, you are full of dead bones. The righteousness that the Spirit will come to convict the world of is that the Spirit demonstrates that the righteousness that God cares about is one that is inner and holistic. And finally, judgment. The Spirit will demonstrate that despite the fact that the world judged, condemned, falsely tried, and killed the Messiah, by the power of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Spirit will convict and prove to the world that his great enemy, the devil, has been defeated. And in fact, Jesus is the victorious one. The judgment according to the world, where they thought they were going to stamp out this Jewish cult that was rising up. In fact, what is birthed in that early church moment of Acts chapter 2 is a movement that will change the world on the back of the resurrection and vindication of the Son. The Spirit acts a bit like a laser level. And if you've seen... If you've had any um, you know, construction happening in your house, uh, perhaps a tradesman or a tradesperson would turn up and put a laser level to see what is flush in your house. And if your house is particularly old, perhaps the line may be a bit out and there's some work that needs to be done. In our house, our doors, just they're not flush. They don't close properly. You can hear everything. Last night, the neighbors were having a great party and I could hear everything spilling off their balcony because our doors don't close properly. And the, the role of the Spirit here is to show to the world th- the, the way that you are seeing things, it's not level. It's, not, it's off-kilt. This is what is flush. This is what is level by the estimation of God's metric, God's value and not the world's. And He will bring conviction. Now, I think that ought to fill us with great confidence as His people, that God is at work in our world by His Spirit, bringing conviction, revealing truth, leading people towards repentance, helping people see. And that takes the pressure off us as His agents of light in the world, as His ministers of reconciliation. Our confidence is not in us, but our confidence is in the fact that God is at work in the world by His Spirit, bringing truth, bringing conviction. I want to say this morning, if you're here and you wouldn't identify as a believer, you wouldn't say, I, I am a Christian. I ask me, have there ever been times in your life where you have felt an inner conviction that you are living your life in a way that you simply weren't intended to live? Where does that conviction come from? Perhaps it's not just religious pressure upon you from, we're not really in a religious society anymore. Maybe that is a conviction of the Spirit drawing you closer to Jesus, bringing conviction into your heart about your life and the way that you're living, and helping you to see something about Jesus in a way that perhaps you have never seen before. Part of what the Spirit will do when He is sent, when He comes, is to bring conviction to the world. But the second thing that He will do is He will guide the church. He has an outward ministry to the world. And an inward ministry to the church. This is what it says in verse 13. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you, you all, this disciple community that Jesus is building here, He will guide you into all the truth. The Spirit will not speak on His own, He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify Me, because it is from Me that He will receive. What he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, The Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. You'll notice here that the ministry of the Spirit is remarkably similar to the ministry of Jesus. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said about his ministry? I don't speak on my own, I only speak what I hear the Father say. The Spirit doesn't speak on his own, the Spirit speaks what he hears. From the Son, and Jesus has passed on what He has received from the Father, and the Spirit passes that on by His conviction to His people. There is this beautiful Trinitarian unity about the message of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's like every political dream, you know, the PM and the, you know, the the the, um, what's the person that looks after all the money? Help me out. The tre. The treasurer and, you know, the deputy, they're all saying the same message. It's a dream. They're not contradicting each other. It's It's the PR marketing person's dream come true. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united in their message. The The Spirit will never contradict Jesus. Jesus will never contradict the Father. He will lead us into truth. You know, that's why it's a false dichotomy to drive this wedge between truth and theology and the work of the Spirit. It's a false dichotomy. He is the Spirit of what? Truth. His ministry is to guide us into all the truth. And so to, to say we, don't need, we just need to get rid of theology in order to experience the Spirit is a false dichotomy. We need both. Good theology, truth have never got in the way of the power of the Spirit at work in the life of the church. In fact, I want to suggest that it is in truth and power of the Spirit together that the church experiences the fullness of the Spirit's ministry. He leads us into truth. We can confidently expect the Spirit to guide us today as His people. He prom- Jesus promises. This is what he will do when he comes. He will guide you. Secondly, the second thing that he says the Spirit will do is he will tell you what is yet to come. The Spirit will tell you what is yet to come. The Spirit will give prophetic insight, help people see. Now, we've got to remember, John, who wrote this portion of the gospel of Jesus is the same person who, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote the book of Revelation, which is full of the future, what is to come. So immediately John is a recipient of one of these promises of the ministry of the Spirit. But also we read in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 that the Spirit pours out as he freely chooses to distribute gifts of prophetic insight and some of those gifts we see exercised in the book of Acts. Thirdly, we see here that the Spirit's ministry is to help us see and savor and appreciate and behold the glory of Jesus. He will glorify the Son, He will lift up the Son, He will help us to see the Son as beautiful, as worthy of everything. Now, I think we see two examples of both the outward ministry of the Spirit and the inward ministry of the Spirit as we walk our way through the book of Acts. So firstly, the first example in Acts chapter 9, I think it is, we see Saul breathing out his murderous threats against the church. And the Spirit of God comes upon Saul in a powerful conversion moment. He has his life completely reoriented. Jesus turns up to him on the road to Damascus and says, why are you persecuting me? And then Ananias comes a a few days later and says, the Lord has told me to lay hands on you. And Saul receives the Holy Spirit and completely changes his life. Right? Here is the spirit at work in the world, convicting probably the church's greatest enemy at the time and bringing him to repentance and radically changing his life. An example of the ministry of the Spirit to the church, I think we see in Stephen's story in Acts chapter 7. Stephen who is described in Acts chapter 7 as a man full of the Holy Spirit. And he is called to give account before the very people that crucified Jesus. And he stands up and he sees a vision of Jesus. He sees a Daniel 7 picture of Jesus being glorified before the Father. And he bears witness to Jesus in the power of the Spirit and they crucify him. Sorry, I don't know if they crucify him. They stone him, I think in Acts chapter 7. Here is the Spirit's ministry, both inward and outward, in, in the life of the church and in the world. The Spirit is at work. Jesus promises that when I go, He will come. You know, to all the families who dedicated your kids this morning, you stood up here in front of your church family and your friends and your immediate family and made promises? Where, where does your confidence lie for your children? And to all the other parents here who have kids in the kids program, to all of our kids workers who are in the room, to all of our GC leaders as you are involved in making disciples who make disciples, to, to anyone involved in any form of leadership here, where does our confidence lie? in the transforming power of the Spirit. To both be at work in our world, drawing people by His conviction and by guiding and leading and empowering the church. And I think perhaps one of the greatest sadnesses of our day, in the Western church at least, this is not true outside of the Western church, because I think the church outside of the West experiences... Jesus at work in their midst by the power of his spirit in a way that we simply do not because we are so self-sufficient. And my call to us today, church, is to be a people who would know what it looks like to see the power of God at work in our city and in our church because we have been a church that is dependent on Jesus ministering his presence to us by his spirit a prayerful church, an expectant church, a church that longs to see God blow through our midst and our city in a profound new way in our time and do a work that was beyond our capacity, beyond our ability to set up a great room with great sound and great lights and incredible graphic design and cool social media, beyond all of that, a hunger and a thirst for the people of God to get on their face before the presence of God and call out for His Spirit to be poured out in a fresh way in our time. That's our prayer, our hope, our dream. Well, like Jesus said to the disciples, I have much more to say, but you can't bear it now. I have the same, much more to say, but uh, I'm rambling and I want to close there. I'm, I'm going to pray and am uh, actually going to hand over to Bree, who's going to lead our church in the Lord's Supper. As the band comes out, let me pray for us. Father, Oh God, we want to say this morning that we need you. We confess that we so often we are self-sufficient, Lord. We do things in our own strength, our own power, our own abilities. And yes, you use all of those things, God, but for the times where that gets in the way, where weakness could be used, God, to do your thing. Please make us a people who is hungry for your spirit. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.